Good morning, Harvest. Everybody doing okay? Thank you, Tony, worship team. Welcome. My name is J.B. Selectman. I'm one of the elders here, and it's a privilege to be one of the elders here, and it's a, it's a privilege today to bring you the Word of God. I love being a part of a church where we get to feast Sunday after Sunday and weekday after weekday in our small groups, our disciple communities, and our services on the written Word of God. Isn't that awesome? And uh, man, how about Romans? I said it at the close of last service. Like Romans is, it's meat, isn't it? It's meat. And if you're like me, you've just, every, every week, it's more meat and more meat. And the Spirit's uh, turning on the lights for me in the book of Romans. And I love it. So, so that's where we are today in Romans chapter 7. Uh, if you want to start turning there, and I'll just by way of about a two-minute review for those of you who are visiting, uh, say that we've been in a two-summer series. So really, today's message is the end of a ten-part series going back to last summer. And uh, last summer, we talked about the concept of justification. And I would love to poll the audience, I'm not going to for the sake of time, but who could give us a definition of justification? It's this doctrine, this concept that Paul laid out in, in, in Romans chapter 3 that says, when you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, at that moment in time, remember we've been saying that over and over again, at that moment in time, you are now justified, a sinner justified before a holy God. You remember that? And it means in a moment of time, the moment of your salvation, you are declared righteous. doesn't mean you are made righteous. Remember, at a moment of time, you are declared righteous, covered by the blood of Christ, so that when God looks down upon you, He doesn't see your sin and your filth and your junk and my sin and my filth and my junk. He sees the blood of Christ. Isn't that glorious? A justification. Justified. It means He looks at me justified, never sinned. Praise the Lord. He said that in Romans 3, in Romans 4, and in Romans 5, and, and, and then in Romans 8. And we'll study that this in the future. It says, those whom he justified at a moment of time, he will what? One day glorify. So it's a guaranteed promise that at a moment of time, if you have been justified, covered by the blood of Christ, declared righteous, that one day yet future in your life, either at your death or when Christ comes again, you will be glorified. And that's when you will be redeemed fully of all of your humanity and all of your flesh and all of your sin. Justification at a moment of time, glorification at a future moment in time. But this summer we've been talking about the in-between. Remember, the process called sanctification. And you remember, sanctification is the process in between justification and glorification where God is making you holy. That's what the word means. He's making you more and more like Jesus. He's drawing you less and less from your former life, less and less away from the world, and making you holy, setting you apart for His glory and for His kingdom's sake. It's the process, moment to moment, the process in between called sanctification. And that's where we've been over the last four weeks. And today is week number five in the last part of, of the series of sanctification. And I'll tell you, um, again, I have the Spirit inside of me, and the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired Paul to write Romans. So when you, if you're a Spirit-filled Christian, you're hearing this stuff, it's just coming alive. It's like light bulbs coming on. And so that's why I love Romans. But I'll tell you another reason why I love Romans, why I love the concept of justification, sanctification, and glorification. It's because I've experienced it. And if you're a born again, you've experienced, it's not a theological reality only, it's a true reality in your life that you have experienced if you are a follower of Christ. Amen? 
I mean, it's true. Like you know that you know that you know and you remember the moment of your justification or thereabouts and you know you have a future of glorification and in the process, anybody struggling to become more like Christ with the flesh and the spirit, it's a reality in my life. It's a reality in your life. Uh, uh, many of you know my story. Uh, I grew up in a small town in, on the Cumberland Plateau, Crossville, Tennessee, and, and I grew up in the church. My grandfather was a dentist and an a, a associate pastor at the church. It's kind of ironic. And, uh, and, uh, so, but I grew up hearing the things of God, hearing the things of God. But you know what? I was a rebel. And I won't get into all the details, and, and you guys may leave if I did, but, uh, but I was a rebel. Like, I just didn't care growing up. I did. I, would, I, I attended. I heard. But it's almost, it's almost like, uh, and I remember at times, even when I, was, when I was a teenager, almost making fun of the things of God. Like, kind of coming in. My dad made me go. My grandparents made me go. And I thought, man, these poor people, like, they only have two days off a week, and they spend the last half of the first half of the last day in here. They don't know this stuff is true, and they kind of... You know, they're kind of, the songs are kind of weird, and the, they don't know this stuff. Like, you can't put your hand around this stuff. And I just thought it's just kind of something people did. And that started about age 14 in my life. And I began to live for myself and live for myself and uh, just pursue the things of the world as a teenager. And I know sometimes you think, oh, teenagers will come back. And I was a rebel. Like, I was, I'd heard the truth, and I was rebelling against it my high school years. And then I got to college. And, uh, boy, you talk about a rebel going this way when he's tethered to the church and tethered to his family. When I got to college, it was just no holes barred. And I think the whole four years I was in college, I went to church two times. I grew up in the church. I think I just didn't care. I didn't care about the things of God. I didn't care about the people of God. I didn't care about the law of God, the word of God. I just wanted to do my own thing like the prodigal in the far country. In Luke 15, I was just away from the Father in the far country, squandering my life away in college. And then in 2000, I moved to Memphis. So I went from this small town to a little bit bigger town. And I thought Memphis was just, just met, you know, metropolitan. Like, man, here it is. And we lived downtown. And there was all this stuff to do. And I just became, began to spiral more and more and more towards myself, towards my hell, towards my rebellion. And I was in dental school. And I, I remember in dental school, you, some of these guys are dental school, you study real hard. Like you work so hard and so hard and so hard. And then you got about four days off after about a four-month study, four-week study block. And you just, go, you just blow it out. And we did that for a year and a half. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. In 2002, my second year of dental school, the Christian girl in my class, her name is Ivy. And uh, Ivy asked me, now this is funny, this is the Lord. <laughs> Ivy asked me if I wanted to go on a mission trip. Like, you just, like I didn't need to go on a mission trip, I was the mission. <laughs> and, and there were 80 people in my class. She should have asked 79 people before me to go to El Salvador, the neighboring country of Honduras, to go to El Salvador to help people in the name of Jesus. And you know what? I said yes. I could have done anything I wanted to on spring break as a pagan hellion, and I said yes to go to El Salvador on a Christian medical dental mission trip. Had no reason to say yes. I said yes, though, for selfish reasons. Like, I was about to enter the clinic, and that's when you start actually doing your work on humans. And so I thought, well, I was going to be paired one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two with a dentist in El Salvador, just me and a dentist. That's a good ratio. And I was going to see all these patients. I was going to really do a lot of oral surgery and stuff. And I thought, well, I'll get ahead of the game. I'll get a lot of good reps in, and I'll be ready to go when I hit the clinic in July in 2002. So I said yes for selfish reasons. So fast forward, we get on the plane. We fly to Honduras in March of 2002. If you, I mean, El Salvador, if you know anything about El Salvadoring weather, 
weather in, two, in March, it quits raining there about October. So it has not rained in El Salvador for five months, and we land. And so imagine how dry it was last week when it hadn't rained here in like three weeks. Five months, like it's dusty, it's hot, and we each had 100 pounds of luggage with us, all of our medical and dental equipment. We get on this bus, and three little El Salvadorian dudes sit at the front of the bus. One of them pulls out a guitar, and he starts singing songs to Jesus. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not what I signed up for. Like if I got to listen to this junk all week, it's going to drive me crazy. Bus ride was three hours. Jesus loves you this I was like, this, I did not come for VBS. I did not come for Kumbaya. I can, I'm a professional. Like, I'm here to get some dental reps in. And I'll never forget this. At the end of that bus ride, in my misery and my hot, heated, irritated self, centered self, we topped the hill and looked down at this church. And I still remember it like it was this morning. The church said, Bienvenidos Americanos, welcome Americans. And there was a sound coming out of that church that I had never heard in my life. And it was in Spanish. And I didn't know what they were saying, but it sounded like heaven. And I walked into that church, and it was like the, the, the sea parted. And all these people, about a thousand people in this church, and they were going, Welcome, God bless you. And they were kissing, Thank you for coming in the name of Jesus. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, they got the wrong dude. Like I'm the biggest pagan in this church. And they were hugging on me and kissing on me. And, and they had so much joy, like the young lady just said, so much joy in their lives and thankfulness in their hearts. And that was Saturday. And all I can tell you was all week long with our patients, they were sharing. I wasn't sharing the gospel. They were sharing the gospel. I was hearing the gospel every minute of every day. I was seeing miracles occur in people's lives. I was seeing alcoholics come to the Lord. I was seeing uh, abused marriages come to Jesus. I was seeing wayward kids come to Jesus. I was seeing repentance and faith all week long. I couldn't get away from the gospel. And I can't tell you when it happened, but sometime that week, I was miraculously born again. And in that moment, 2002 of March, I was justified, a broken, self-centered sinner, justified before a holy God. Isn't that awesome? And I remember that moment, and I go back to I just had uh, lunch last week, dinner last week with my El Salvadorian friend, Pastor. And we just cried about that moment and rejoiced in that moment when I heard the gospel broken and repented and put my faith in Christ. And at that moment, I was justified. Now, I came back to Memphis. What do you think happened when newborn selectmen, <laughs> fresh out of the birth canal, if you will, got back to Memphis Back in the mess. Who here thinks I struggled? I struggled. I was a newborn, full of the Spirit. The Bible says when you become a follower of Christ, He puts His Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, inside your dead spirit. You remember last week, Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. I was dead. Corpse, the Greek word for dead is dead. I was dead. And he put his spirit inside of me and made me alive. I now contain the Holy Spirit. But I came back and boy, did I struggle. And you know what the truth of the matter is? If you were to put a microscope and sometimes a macroscope on my life today, you know what you would still see? A sinner saved by grace struggling in the process called sanctification from the moment of new birth justification until he calls me home his spirit is pulling me Godward the spirit is pulling me towards the things of God yet my flesh still pulls me back here to the world and to myself 
Anybody feel that struggle? And Paul talks about that struggle today when he finishes this chapter called sanctification. And I want to deal with that today. And, and this is one of the reasons, by the way, that outsiders look into the church and they call us what? What's, the, what's one of the number one words we get called? It starts with an H. Amen. Hypocrites. They get together. They talk about goodness. They talk about the law. They talk about morality. They sing these songs. But I know one of them. I'm his neighbor. And I know how he really acts. I'm married to him. I know how he really acts. And Paul's going to deal with that today, that we are still struggling, contending with our flesh. But the difference is we used to not contend with our flesh as a lost person, as a rebel. Now we contend with our flesh as a son or daughter of God. Amen? We're constitutionally different. Let me pray, and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, would you uh, shine light today some difficult truths, some, some true truths the fact that we all struggle with sin, it's a heavy, grave concept, Father. The fact that we are not holy yet still, even though we are saved, even though we are declared righteous, Lord, we still struggle with the flesh. Father, and I pray today that that struggle will become so real to us that we follow you more earnestly, that you draw us to yourself more earnestly, that we become more and more like Jesus to your glory and for the sake of the kingdom. That is my prayer. And I pray, Lord, that this wouldn't be a time of discouragement, that this would be a time of encouragement to walk in the Spirit. It's to that end that I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, go ahead, Luke, and put up uh, Galatians 5. I'm going to come right in the front door this morning, and I want to just give you, I've got two points today. It's pretty good. Kenan usually has seven. I got two. Uh, two points today. And I'll go ahead and hit you with the first one. I just want you to know this. Um, I was at a conference one time teaching, and this guy came up and, and just confessed. Like, man, I hear all this stuff, and I desire to disciple, and I desire to reach the nations, but I'm struggling with X, Y, Z. He just came right out of the front door. Right in the front door, and I was like, whoa, man. I mean, he just admitted it all. And I appreciated his honesty in that moment. You know, 1 John chapter 1 says, if we admit we have no sin, we're a what? Liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Isn't that good? And so this guy came up and he said, I'm struggling. And my disciple maker, Brother Herb, who many of you know, looked at this man and he said, open your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. I was like, wow, what's going on here? So we both opened our Bible to Galatians chapter 5, and he read him this verse, had the guy read it. Galatians 5, 17 says, sanctification text, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Anybody feel that in their life? Like, I have the Holy Spirit. I have been regenerated. I've been reborn. It's a new birth, a caterpillar to a butterfly. Yet, I still have the flesh. And the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other. Spirit pulling me towards holiness. Spirit pulling me towards the Father. His Spirit pulling me towards Him. And my flesh pulling me this way. It's why C.S. Lewis called his flesh uh, brother ass. Excuse the, the gravity. He's talking about a donkey. He, he called, he's the old English word for donkey. He said, uh, it's like an old mule. You're pulling the mule this way, pulling the mule this way. What's the mule want to do? Hee-haw and kick back that way. And you got to beat the mule with a two-by-four to get it to do what you want it to do. It's the same with your flesh. It's an old, stubborn donkey. Amen? And you become to be like Paul today, and you become to hate it. And we're going to get to that in the text. So, so point number one, 
the spirit is opposed to the flesh and the flesh is opposed to the spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do in your new self. I'm talking about a new creation. That's Galatians 5.17. Look with me at Romans chapter 7, verse 14. And you'll remember last week, Paul was speaking in past tense. And, and Kenan preached last week on the law. And he said, it was the law that made me aware of my sin. Remember, Kenan said, it, the law wielded its final blow. When you came face to face with the holiness of the law and the goodness of the law and the righteousness of the law, that's when you realized you were a sinner. And if you look at verse 13, he said, it was the law that made me realize, the last part of verse, 10, verse 13, that I was a sinner beyond measure. Like I'm out of bounds, sinner. That, that was past tense. That's like me in El Salvador. When I heard the goodness of the Lord and the glory of the Lord all week long, I started realizing, man, I am a messed up sinner beyond measure. That's my personal testimony in Romans chapter 7, verse 13. That was past tense. Here's what's amazing. Paul now turns in verse 14 to present tense. He's talking about, and this is the apostle Paul. Like Paul's a big dog. This is a pioneer, missionary, evangelist, disciple-making, world-conquering Christian speaking present tense about himself. This is a Christian's testimony about himself, present tense. Here's what he says in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now again, think about this. Paul says the law is spiritual. It's coming from the Lord. God is spirit. God sent us the law, so the law is spiritual. The law is good, and the Holy Spirit inside me is in tune with the spiritness, the spirituality of the law, if you will. So Paul says the law is spiritual. The law is good, but what's the problem? I am of the flesh, and my flesh, Paul said, is sold out to sin. Like the only thing my flesh wants to do, the donkey, is go back to my former way of life. Uh, John MacArthur calls your flesh, you want to write this down if you're taking notes, unredeemed humanity. Like my spirit's been made new, my mind, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, I now have the mind of Christ, my spirit's been made new, I have the mind of Christ, my desires have changed, yet the flesh, the unredeemed humanity that will be redeemed at glorification is still sold out to the bondage of sin. Verse 14. Verse 15 says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing that I hate. Now again, this is why I think he's talking as a Christian here because there are those that say, no, no, this text is for unbelievers. I do not believe that categorically. Think Paul is talking about a Christian because he says, when I am acting underneath the flesh, when my flesh is still under bondage to sin, I what? I hate it. And you, if you're a born again, you know that feeling. I hate it when I pop at my wife. I hate it when I lose impatience with my kids, when I lose patience with my kids. I hate it when I think about myself rather than think about I hate it when my eyes wander. I hate it when I still continue in gossip. I hate it, hate it, hate it. Paul says, when I want to do the things of the Spirit in my new self, but my flesh pulls me this way, I hate it. And he says in verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. Isn't he being real here? You hear the transparency of his testimony here? Um, Verse, seven, verse, 16, verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now that's a dangerous verse. <laughs> I see you acting out of line with the gospel. That's what 
Paul told Peter in Galatians 2. I see you acting out of line with the gospel. And Peter said, hey man, it ain't, it, it's not me, it's my sin. And in a real sense, that's true. Like Paul saying, the new I, the new me, I desire Christ. I desire purity. I desire holiness. Yet when I go this way, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me that is in my flesh. That's point number two. Point number one, spirit opposed to the flesh, flesh opposed to the spirit. Point number two is... We have a theological concept here, an actual reality, and it's called, write this down, indwelling sin. That in the process of sanctification, the Spirit again is pulling you Godward, but your indwelling sin of the flesh is pulling you back toward the old man. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul told the Ephesians, put off the old self Put on the new self. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. In your flesh, Harvest, you need to know this. As a Christian, you still have indwelling sin. And it must be fought. It must be mortified. It must be put to death. Amen? John Owen, a Puritan pastor back in the 1700s, he wrote 150 pages in Old English on the concept of indwelling sin in the believer. That's big time stuff. He said it is that important that we understand who we are in our flesh and who we are in Christ that when left to our flesh and left to ourselves, we'll go back to the old way of life unless we stay in step with the Spirit. I have indwelling sin. Um, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. You hear that? Now notice he didn't say, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That would be a lie. Because what does indwell, Paul? says the moment of your salvation, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. He will never leave. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my, say it with me, flesh. He puts no confidence in his flesh. He puts no confidence in the old man, the flesh. And the old man still rears its ugly head in Paul's life. I, uh, some of you know this. I just spent a year um, renovating an old house, and um, I don't know that I'd ever do it again, but I'm glad it's over with. Uh, there was a house for sale in our neighborhood. It was on an acre lot, and it was a beautiful old home, and when it went for sale about three years ago, my wife and I used to walk by it all the time. We were like, oh, the house is for sale. wonder who's going to buy that. Oh, the house is for sale. wonder who's going to buy that. And it never sold, and it never sold, and it never sold. For over a year, the house didn't sell. And one day we got a call from a contractor friend of ours who knew we wanted to uh, redo our kitchen and have one extra bedroom for my out-of-town parents when they come to see us. And he said, you know that house for sale on the corner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we can renovate that house and make it the house you want. And I was like, well, okay, a little skeptical. So we went to see the house. It's a beautiful old home, uh, a beautiful house and a great yard and all this. And... Um, we, the real estate agent opens the front door, and I'm kind of excited but kind of skeptical, and walk in the front door of the house, and I'm like, I went, I was like, I was kind of eight excited, I went straight to a two. Like, this is terrible. Um, it, was, it hadn't been lived in in a year. The, uh, the, the man that had lived in it had passed away, and so for a year and a half, they'd been getting rid of his estate, and the last thing that they couldn't get rid of was this old house. And uh, it was dirty. It was old. It was, still had the old shag carpet and cra crazy walls. And there was mildew and mold and cobwebs. And I was kind of like, ah. So first sight, it didn't look pretty. But then it got where it went from. I went from a two to a one. Then I took a smell. And it stunk. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm not being ugly to the old man. He was actually a really nice guy. Everybody loved him. But he smoked. 
And he smoked in that house for 20-something years. And so it smelled like a, a college bar. <laughs> Don't laugh or we'll know you've been in one. Um, it smelled terrible. It smelled terrible. And you could literally, the guy's been dead 18 months, and you literally would leave the house, my wife and I, and it was in your clothes, in your hair. It smelled like smoke. The tar and the nicotine and all that had gone into the sheetrock, up in the rafters. Like, I said, we can't buy this house. It's unlivable. And the contractor said, no, no, no. We can get rid of that smell if we completely redo the inside of the house. And I said, are you sure? And even halfway through the project, like all the demolition, so we did it. All the, it, It's funny, his daughter came, the contractor's daughter, one time we were standing out in the yard like 25 yards from the front door, and she said, oh, it's still, the door's open, and the smell is wafting out into the neighborhood. I'm like, people are going to hate us. And she said, oh, it still smells like Mr. Bob. That wasn't his name, but oh, nasty. And uh, so even halfway through the renovation, I'm still telling my wife, like, I'm, I'm nervous. Like, it still smells. I guarantee it. Once we put the sheetrock, once we paint it and seal it, it won't smell. Promise, promise. I was laying on my couch Thursday night, and, uh, and some people walk in the door. My wife said, hey, these are the Smiths from down the street. They want to see the new home. And they came in, and she said, oh, it's beautiful. It's, be, it's, oh, I can't believe, it doesn't even look like the same house. It's totally new, and thank you, and all this. And, and she said, I was at the estate sale back two years ago. I cannot believe it. It's a new, she's like saying, it's a new creation. It's beautiful. And uh, people, we have people over all the time. And you know, in, in, in a year, it'll be, Labor Day, it'll be a year. In one year, not one person has ever said, something stinks. Isn't that good? Like, so here's what happened. A new owner moved into the house and completely changed the house from the inside out so much so that it's not recognizable to the people who used to recognize it as an old stinky house. That's a picture of the gospel. Ephesians 3 says Jesus wants to move in and kata oikos, dwell with you forever and change you from the inside out. Isn't that good? Here's the punchline. There's one room of the house we didn't renovate. It's got a third-story attic. Man, I even said renovate the attic. I want nothing that can remind me of that smell. So we put new floor in the attic, painted the attic. There's a little furnace room off the attic. It's where the air conditioner and the furnace is. And we were told that the furnace was so new and the AC was so new, there's no point in doing that. We'll give you new duct work, but we're going to leave that one room not touched. And you know what? Every once in a while when the pressure in the air is right or the humidity is right or the wind's right or whatever it is, when the AC comes on or when the heater comes on, you know what the owner smells? I still smell the old man. And I hate it. It drives me crazy. That's a picture of a Christian. Completely new owner on the inside completely changed, looks different to the world, acts different to the world, smells good, welcoming, clean, yet every once in a while, the old man rears his head. That's the flesh, and we've got to know that if we are going to contend well against the flesh in the process of sanctification. The flesh and the spirit. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, uh, end of verse 18. For I desire to do what is right, 
but I have not the ability to carry it out in my flesh. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wow, he said it's flesh, and now he says I still do evil in my flesh. My spirit doesn't like it. I don't understand my action, yet he calls his flesh evil here. Verse 20, Now, if I do what I do not want, here it is again, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that indwells me. So he says indwelling sin in verse 17. He says indwelling sin in verse 20. And in verse 23, he's going to call it the law of the members of my body. Three times he refers to it as indwelling sin. And he said it's not me doing it. It's the sin. It's the old man rearing its ugly head, pulling me back selectmanward, if you will. Verse 21, he's just going to make a statement here. He's going to make a declarative statement. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, here it is again, evil. Like He doesn't say, oh, it's just a little habit I got. It's just a little problem. He calls it evil. Evil lies close at hand. It's what God told Cain in Genesis 4. Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it's what? desire is for you. Do you remember that? The sin wants to master you. Paul says, when I want to do right in the spirit as the new man, evil is there pulling me back towards the old man. I find that to be a law true in my life. It's true in my life. And if you're born again, it's true in your life. Verse 22. Now again, this is why I believe he's talking as a believer. Verse 22 says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Do you hear that? Do you think when I was a pagan and when you were a pagan, did you delight in the law of God? I could have cared less about God's holiness and his righteousness. I could have cared less. I didn't. As a matter of fact, there were times when I mocked the people of God. Now Paul says as a believer, I delight in the law of God. Isn't that good? Psalm 1 said, how blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's a new creation. Now the Spirit is delighting in the things of God. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inside, in my redeemed, regenerated spirit. Regenerated spirit. Verse 23, but... Anytime you see an awesome statement in Scripture followed by B-U-T, a counterconjunction, you know something bad's about to be said. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, circle the phrase, waging war, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. Here it is again, that dwells in my members, indwelling sin. Inside in the Spirit, I delight in the things of the Lord. I delight in Christ. I delight in goodness and mercy and holiness. But in my members, I have a war, a cosmic, metaphysical, actual war going on. It's not, again, he's not winking at his sin and saying, oh, I hope I come out of this or maybe I'll quit one day. He said, it's a war inside of me and I hate it. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And look at verse 24. Uh, probably the most honest confession in all of Scripture. This is probably the most transparent moment in all of Scripture. Paul just calls himself a what? Say it with me. Starts with a W. Wretch! Like, oh, I'm, I'm just a bad boy. I'm just a little, I got a hot temper. I just tell it like it is. I just this. I just that. 
No, no. He says, I am a wretch in my flesh. When left to myself, I'm going wretched. Wretch. Like no one wants to be called a wretch. Don't try that with one of your family members. No one wants to be called. He calls himself a wretch. It's the most transparent moment in Scripture. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. And uh, this phrase, it just struck me this week as I'm studying. When I, when I heard the word wretch there. It reminds me of a story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you have, you want to flip there, you can. You don't have to. We've got about 10 more minutes. But there's a little boy in, in the Old Testament. He refers to himself as a dead dog. And when I heard the word wretch in Romans 7, I thought, that sounds familiar. And I went back and I looked at this text. 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's the story of King David and Mephibosheth. And many of you are familiar with this story. King Saul was the first king of Israel. You remember King Saul was a wicked, tyrannical, he was really a nut. And uh, he didn't lead well. And uh, the people were afraid of Saul and all that. And you remember there was an enemy of Israel, and his name was Goliath. He was a Philistine giant. And no one could slay the giant. And one day at the battle, this little shepherd boy named David came to the battlefield. He wasn't even supposed to be there. And he heard Goliath mocking God, and he slayed the giant. And King Saul was probably the one that's supposed to slay the giant. But here comes this little shepherd boy who slays the giant. And what did that do to King Saul? It sent him into a rage of jealousy. Remember the people said Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And so King Saul, the wicked king, spent the rest of his life trying to kill David. They were arch enemies. He hated David. And Saul's life ended in a, just a whimper. He, he ended up committing suicide on the battlefield. And not long after that, when King Saul died, King David became the new king. And King David was the good king, right? The king after God's own heart. And so in, in 2 Samuel, David's setting up his kingdom. He's conquering the land. He's making cabinet, his cabinet and officials and making his government. And all of a sudden, David says, Hey, is there anybody left in Saul's family? And I can imagine kind of the room went quiet like, uh-oh, what's he going to do? Because David had to run from his, for his life because Saul was trying to kill him. And King David says, is there anybody left in Saul's family? And I, I think the air probably went out of the room. And then he clarified his statement that I might show kindness to him. New king looking into the camp of his enemies, into the family of his enemy, a new king calling for a child of the enemy to come forward. And they put their heads together and they said, actually, there's a little boy named Mephibosheth. There's a little boy. He's Saul's grandson. And then they say this. He's crippled in both of his feet. Like, Why is that in there? There's a little boy. He's Saul's grandson. He's crippled in both of his feet. And David says, bring him to me. Now, the little boy's name is Mephibosheth. Now, imagine, you know, like, oh, gosh, the new king and my granddad. And, man, I'm just trying to lay low. Like, <laughs> don't make any noise. Who is it? It's the king's servants. What? Shoot. What does he want? The new king has sent for you. Oh, gosh, I knew this was going to happen. I didn't. I had nothing to do with it. I'm sorry, my granddad. So the servants bring the crippled little boy, the broken little boy, the lame little boy of the enemy in the presence of the new king. And King David looks at this little boy and he calls him by name. He says, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth responds in humility and he says, Here I am, Lord, your servant. 
And David says to him the greatest words that the king could say to the little, broken, lame boy, son of the enemy, do not fear. Amen? Do not fear. I will restore you. He says, do not fear, little boy. I will restore you. And listen, what else he tells him? And you shall eat at my table always. Isn't that good? You shall eat at my table always. And listen what Mephibosheth said. What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog such as I? Wretched man. Dead dog. Do you see the the realities that these people knew about themselves? I'm a dead dog. I'm a wretched man. Why would you show me favor? Then... King David says to all the servants of Saul, hey, I want you to go make the land right for this little boy. You're going to go work for this little boy. And listen, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. The son of the enemy is in the king's palace eating at the king's table. And then Samuel just writes uh, one more statement before we get to the end. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Son. An enemy of the king, dining with the king as a child of the king. Amen? Look at the last verse. Luke, would you put it up for me? So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. That's the city of the king. For he ate always at the king's table. That's the palace of the king and the glory of the king. Now, last phrase of the chapter, he was lame in both his feet. That's a picture of a Christian. Like, that's where I was. In 2002, I was in the enemy camp. I was, and I heard the gospel all week long. I was hostile. Romans 5 said I was an enemy of the cross. And all week long, all week long, I heard the gloriousness of the king and the goodness of the king. And at some point in time, if you're a born again, the king looked at you and he calls you by name. Selectman, Carrie, John, Tom, Betty. He calls you by name. You respond in humility. Why are you having favor on me? And he says, no, 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 do not fear. I'm going to restore you. Like Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Do not fear. And a matter of fact, I'm going to restore you and you're going to sup with me and dine with me. Not as a servant. Ephesians 1 1 says we're adopted as sons and daughters of the king. Isn't that good? And yet, as we're dining with the king... And as we're children of the king, we never lose that brokenness, that lameness called the flesh. That's the picture of a Christian. Paul says, I'm a wretched man. Go back to Romans 7, and and I'll close with this. Paul asks at the end of verse 24, the most important question of sanctification. Who? Who? He said, I'm struggling between the spirit and I'm struggling with the flesh. There's a war going on inside of me. And he just asked the question, ready? Who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? And what's he call it? From this body of what? Death. He says, flesh, I hate it. Sin and dwelling in my members, it's evil. And now he calls it a body of death. And he says, well, who will deliver me? 
Who? And he answers his question, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Like, he was Lord of my justification in a moment of time because of his lordship, because of his sacrifice on the cross, because he is the risen Savior, I am justified. And one day, 1 Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians 15 says, in a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, we will be changed. He is Lord of our glorification. And you know what he is? As we contend, as we fight, as the Spirit pulls us towards the Father, he is Lord of my sanctification. Who will deliver me? His name is Jesus, and he is Lord. He's not a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He's the risen, conquering Lord. And he will justify you if you've never been justified. And he will glorify you if you have been justified. And in the meantime, as you're having a meantime, he will deliver you as you follow him. As you fix your eyes on Jesus and let the Spirit draw you towards Jesus. And walk in the Spirit and pray in the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. Because the Spirit is keeping Christ Lord dominant. Hallelujah in your life. Amen. So what's the key to sanctification? It's focusing on Jesus as Lord. Don't go back. Don't, don't, don't hate your flesh like Paul. Hate it. Like put it to death. Hebrews 12. I think I quote this every time I preach. I think it's my favorite verse. I think all of them are my favorite. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so Closely. Y'all feel that sometimes? And fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and run the race. Amen? Who will deliver me? His name is Jesus. Tony, would y'all come? Um, we're going to celebrate communion today. Uh, in light of the truths we've heard, the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, uh, if you've never turned your life to Christ, if you've never repented of your sins, and if you've never been justified, like you're still trying to figure it out yourself, you've just never turned your life over just like I did, man, today's the day to do it. You can come to the table as a new believer and partake of the elements. And if you are a born again, if you're in the family of God, we celebrate communion every Sunday and we remember Jesus as Lord, his body broken on the cross, his blood shed. His blood is the reason we're justified. His blood is the reason we're forgiven. And we remember that sacrifice and we come and we, we repent. We, we live in a continual state of repentance and forgiveness. We want to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so as you remember his sacrifice today, be thankful for Christ. And if you've never put your faith, your hope, and your trust in him, do it today. Be justified before a holy God today. Tables are open. Come on now.